Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. I'm Victor Blackwell. And I'm Tiffany Kenny. Thank you for joining us. That boy was at the juvenile detention center in West Palm Beach when he suddenly died. Aaron Guy tells us what officials are now saying about his death. I can tell you that there is an extensive investigation going on right here behind me at the detention center tonight. We do know that a juvenile male was found dead inside the facility around 8 o'clock yesterday morning. Now, this is still under investigation. They say the West Palm Beach police, they're investigating right now. They're not talking about the circumstances surrounding this juvenile's death. And they say they're waiting for an autopsy before the investigation can be complete. Now, I did talk to a communications director here at the facility, and they tell me um, no one has been put on administrative leave at this time because of the investigation. They say there's not a lot that they can tell us at this point, but as soon as they have information, they'll be sure to let us know. They did add that they wanted from their prayers and condolences to this family who has lost a loved one. As soon as we get new information, we'll be sure to bring it to you. In West Palm Beach, Erin Guy, WCBF 25 News. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight is no exception as we talk about the voices from behind the wall, juvenile terrorism, if you will, happening in our prisons. What's going on? AJC Radio takes off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, William Williams, Samson Riddle, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we begin to address the issue, Voices Behind the Wall, Part 2, Juveniles Behind the Wall, and the horror stories continue. We're going to begin into discussion here momentarily. Feel free to dial into the show at 646-200-0628. That's 646-200-0628. And, uh... Uh, we're happy to be here. Uh, part of this show tonight is as we get into, again, the things happening in juvenile detention centers across this nation, uh, we're going to be addressing those issues. Uh, joining us here at the bottom of the hour, Johnny Perez. He is an advocate, uh, and I'll tell you what, he's dealing with issues regarding juvenile uh, detention centers, things that are happening. Uh, he, we're going to get his perspective on a few things that are going on and what made him become an advocate and it's called Urban Justice. We're going to be dealing with that tonight here at the bottom of the hour. We're going to get his perspective uh, as well as uh, everything else that is going on. So, uh, folks, call your neighbors, call your friends, get your kids if you can, uh, those teenagers around the, the area to hear this show. Uh, and because I'll tell you what, if you think your loved one is safe uh, behind the wall, I can tell you right now uh, that's, that's, uh, that can be questioned. And we're going to be dealing with that and answering some questions tonight, getting into this discussion. William? As we get ready to proceed forward with this, uh, part two again of the juveniles, our youngsters being tortured in prisons, uh, juvenile detention centers across this country, uh, absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, that's true. You know, we've, we've just started scratching the surface as far as, you know, uncovering what's going on with our youth um, that have may, may have made a bad decision, whatever, wrong place, wrong time, and now their life goes from, uh, you know, 
bad to worse when they when you talk about behind the walls, the conditions that they're facing, uh, just the cruel and inhumane um, situation and circumstances that they're facing. It's incredible. Um, and, and it's extremely sad because basically these ki- these children don't have a chance to rebound. They don't have they're they're being they're being treated very much as adults. They're putting in adult situations. We've talked about and we've heard clips about uh, you know the cruel and predatory nature that these guards and uh, are, are basically subjecting these kids to. Uh, we've talked about uh, fight clubs and being and and being rewarded over for honey buns and and, and just. Just this—I mean, this is this is real. This is not; these are not clips from a movie that we're listening to. These are actual situations that we're uncovering to bring light to the situation because people need to really wake up. And unfortunately, we we always react later after the fact when it hits our doorstep. That's when we react. We need to be prepared. We need to watch out for our children and understand what's going on behind the walls. No, absolutely right. We're going to deal with that. Samson, your thoughts as we get ready to continue coverage here about these youngsters yeah absolutely i can only go to echo like uh, a lot of what william's saying uh these young children are they're behind the wall they're being manipulated they're being put in situations that are not mentally psychologically or even physically prepared for and we have to be their voices we have to advocate for them and we have to really speak out and get some legislation get whatever we have to do to get done to, to just get justice for these youngsters well we need to start putting handcuffs on these folks that are doing this to these kids uh i tell you what that's one step to take uh, and uh, anybody else is going to be arrested or, or in a situation. Folks, on the other side of the break, we're coming back. Voices from behind the wall, juvenile injustice and the suffering. Uh, and we hear from the juveniles in this show. We, we tell their story. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experienced some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff, but he actually has to have permission A lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at 1-855-357-9673. 
1-855-529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Yeah. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Voices from behind the wall. We hear from the children tonight, the juveniles that are locked up in juvenile detention centers across this nation. Uh, We're addressing what they are going through. And now we find that a lot of youngsters back there in these juvenile detention centers across this country are being put in solitary confinement. Uh, That's unreal. Uh, And the abuse starts, we said it before, the abuse is not only in the adult prisons. It's not only in the, in the, in the jail system. It's, it's in the juvenile system. It's everywhere that abuse can be done. That's what's happening. And we're going to be addressing those issues tonight as we get into discussion. And, uh, William, I'll tell you what. Uh, there was a reason President Obama, when he was in office, he began, I believe he was a little late in it. Uh, but he started to address the issues of solitary confinement. There are numbers of studies that talk about the impact of, 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 of confinement with adults. How do we just bypass that and do it to these kids? And you wonder why you find these kids hanging from their bunks with a belt around their neck killing themselves. Somebody has to be held accountable for that. Absolutely. I mean, you can't. Number one, you know, you were saying the whole system is broken. The whole system of incarceration is broken. There is no rehabilitation. There is there is no concept of this. And then basically it's it's treat them all the same way. It doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter their gender. They basically just put them in these in, in these environments that are just hostile. But the thing is so bad is these children are faced with all of a sudden they're put in adult situations and they're tr- being treated extremely cruelly by adults these are predators so the predators that are that are preying on them are adults so all of a sudden they're dealing with this immaturity they're dealing with you know uh, what we what they say you know they're kind of green to the ways of the world in some aspects and now they're they're being forced into a situation where it's it's cruel you're gonna have to grow up quick and they treat them so bad so when you take them and you say okay i'm just gonna throw you in solitary confinement they don't. You have to look at the mental capability of an adu- of a of an adult, and how they, like you said, the 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 impacts that that's had. It's going to be even more so when you talk about a kid. When you talk about a, a, a teenager, that you know, again, they're dealing with being away from home for their first time. They're dealing with imprisonment. Now you put them in a solitary environment, and they're confined. Yeah. I can't even imagine what they what they would feel or what they must be going through. I can't imagine what I would, you know, me personally, if I was to be put in that situation. And now me at 14 or me at 15 put in that situation, I, man, I, could, I couldn't even imagine. No, I mean, that's something that's – there's no way you can wrap your hands around that for a youngster. Uh, again, we talked a lot about uh, these things that uh, happen – uh, again, to y'all, to, to to adults in these in these prisons, and uh, uh, it's something that's not going to work. I'm going to play a clip real quick. We're going to come back and discuss it, and I'm going to share a story uh, regarding uh, another horrible situation. Uh, let's go to the clip. Some pictures now from a county official of a bloody mess inside the cell of a teenager at the Palm Beach Juvenile Justice Facility. It is because of these photos, which News Channel 5 sent to the Department of Juvenile Justice, the DOJJ will now visit the facility and investigate what happened. 
Tonight, a guard at this local facility is talking about other issues facing inmates and guards. News Channel 5's Alyssa Hyman live now with a story you'll see only on 5. Alyssa? Kelly, this guard, who obviously did not want to be identified, says one of the biggest issues at this facility is it's not properly staffed, putting both staff and inmates at risk. Hiding his identity, this Palm Beach juvenile correctional employee tells us a 17-year-old at the facility cut himself last night. Massive amounts of blood, you know, that basically littered the floor and the walls. But the facility is telling a different story. In a statement, Youth Services International says the teen said his toilet was broken and asked to use the bathroom. A few minutes later, a guard noticed the teen had, quote, superficial self-inflicted scratches. If that is from a superficial scratch, you know, I mean... I think it was something more severe. In fact, this guard says the toilet had been broken for at least a week and that the teen had been actually asking for hours to use the bathroom. And the teen cut himself to get someone's attention. The facility told us that the proper ratio of one staff to 12 kids was being followed. But this employee says the ratio was really 1 to 24 because not all of the staff is actually assigned to supervise the young inmates. Nightly, I mean, it's, you know, always short. You know, we have one staff based on every unit. You know, um, ratio is just, it's never really been followed. Mayor Shelley Vanna has been calling for change at the facility for a while now. There have been broken bones and then people in intensive care. Guards have been hurt. The kids have been hurt. And now this horrific scene. Vanna saying Youth Services International, the private company that runs the facility, is not fit to do the job. Yesterday, the secretary of DJJ said YSI is salvageable. It is not salvageable. And things like this happen all the time. Now that employee tells us that the boy never saw a doctor or nurse that night. He also says the boy's parents were not notified immediately. Now if you want to see the full statements from both the DJJ and the facility YSI, they are on our website, WPTV.com. Reporting live in West Palm Beach, Alyssa Hyman, WPTV News Channel 5. All right, there you have it. William, your thoughts on that clip? You know, it's, it's, it's terrible when you see these situations. This kid needed some help. And, you know, to see the blood there and do nothing. Uh, it's it's terrible, you know. We and we've again. This is another situation we've, that echoes the problem. There is no medical care. There is no no sense of compassion and humanity towards these kids. They see these situations, um, and and they just you know go 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 about their way. The guards do. The, the the administration goes about their business and just says, you know what, this is this is it. This is how we treat them. It's it, you know one one guard to twelve. To twelve uh, inmates, you know, we follow protocol. They are, that's uh, we heard that we've heard that so much that we follow protocol. We follow the procedures that was outlined in the book, in, in our in our in our um, I guess our operational profile manual, whatever they have. And it's sad because that is their fallback. They don't care. They really don't care about the well-being of these people. They don't even uh, you know, and we. It's a very frustrating thing. It's a very frustrating thing when you think uh, yeah. somebody has lost their life, 
someone would go on administrative leave. Someone may get fired. That's about the extent of what we've heard as yeah. far as, as well, retribution for the, for the actions. But someone has lost their life. A child has died while in custody. A child. A child. I mean, and the, and the biggest thing that, that really bothers me about this, this when you talk, we're talking about teenagers that still have a life to live. They can go on and live a successful life and say, you know, at that, at, at that time in my life, I made a bad mistake. I made a bad choice. They don't get that. Well, here's the problem. You would think the objective would be to correct children. You don't have any idea what home life these kids may come from, what tragedies, what abuse may have happened in these homes. So you, you take them out of an abusive home. And they perhaps they've acted as a result of that abuse, and you put them in another abusive situation. How much is that youngster supposed to take? And then you go and turn around and you want to put them in solitary confinement. You treat them like th- that is the culture of this society. And what you're finding here, it doesn't matter how old you are, if you are handcuffed and put in any type of confinement, you deserve whatever you get. That is the culture. That is the mindset of this society today. Th- that's just the bottom line. Regardless if they've been charged. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If, you're, if you are in prison, you are guilty. And that's the way to look at it. If you're in prison, you're in jail, you're guilty. It doesn't matter. That is the bias that we have. And so because you're guilty, now you haven't been judged. You haven't, you haven't appeared for your peers, but you now – are going to be subjected to the cruel and inhumane punishment of oh. the system. Well, here's the thing. Even let's let's just put that on the table. Let's say you are convicted. Say you are guilty of doing something wrong. Judge and give me a death sentence. It doesn't give him the right to mistreat. You don't have a right to. Doesn't matter. I don't think people comprehend the depth of being incarcerated, of being separated from your family, your freedom being taken. You. But people think, well, they need to be punished. Spend a night. You don't have to spend just one night in a detention center or being incarcerated one night. You understand that punishment is far, far away as anything you can do to that youngster or to that person in prison. You have no idea. I talk from experience. So I know exactly how this thing works. And I'll tell you right now, uh, mine was a wrongful conviction, but it, it, it made the situation no less. Uh, horrific of what you had to go through behind that wall. People do not have a clue, and you need to pay attention. Yeah, and I think like we've said on the show, sh- the show so many times, it's like the sentence once they are sentenced, like that's the punishment. <clears throat> Having to deal with being mistreated by guards, by whomever, <clears throat> like that. That's that's just inhumane. It is. It is. Um, one second here. I'll tell you what. We're going to be uh, joined by a guest here shortly, uh, Mr. Johnny Perez. He's going to give some insight to some of this stuff. But here's a story about a 15-year-old girl raped in detention, taking advantage. She's an adult. You're a kid. Kids don't have their own choices. She made choices for you, and they were not good choices. That's what Bridget Hester told her then 15-year-old daughter who disclosed she had sex for three months with a woman who had been her counselor uh, at the now-closed Broward Girls Academy. 
Riviera Beach police said there was a probable cause to charge the counselor with child abuse and lewd or lasciviousness battery. But on January 31st, 2014, prosecutors declined to press charges, saying they could not prove all legally required elements of the crime. The counselor was fired. Where's the justice? Hester asked. If she did it once, she'll do it again. She knew my daughter was taking medications for her mind, for her thinking. Why do that? That's taking advantage. Florida has no tolerance for officers or youth workers who exploit their power over young people. The Department of Juvenile Justice Secretary Christina K. Daly told the Herald, staff are held accountable. We have prosecuted a number of staff as a result of this behavior. I will not tolerate it. So many of the kids that came into our system are already victims of sexual abuse and other types of abuse, Daly added. I certainly don't want this system to contribute to that. A 15-year-old girl raped an underage minor by her counselor in a girls' facility, the Broward Girls Academy, which is now closed. She goes there and is raped. And the prosecution comes back and says, we have to decline on pressing charges. I, can, I don't get that. So you wonder why, as William just alluded to, why do these things continue to happen? Because guess what? If I get fired, I can go to another job. It's not a problem. I can go victimize another kid. But it's a welcome behavior, though. That's what, that's what people need to realize. There's no ramifications for this. You get fired, okay? You get fired from a job. No different than anybody else. But you got fired because you committed a, a heinous, violent act on a 15-year-old. That if, that if you didn't have – if the situation was totally different, if you didn't have a uniform on, if you were, if you were in a different situation, that would be rape charges. Well, that's the problem is that there is no accountability in these facilities. You have all the way from the top, they, they just – they do a cover-up. I mean you think about the abuse that we hear uh, in the news right now with um, these, you know, thousand children being abused by these 300 and something priests. The problem was that the accountability from the top never came down. No one ever when it was when it was reported by someone internally, it was hidden and that is the same type of issue that goes on in these so-called correctional facilities where they're supposed to be correcting the children's behavior behavior and teaching them how to be a viable part of society when they get out of these juvenile situations, but instead these children are being abused. There's no accountability. And then when the people at the top, when they find out that abuse happened, what do they do? They cover it up. And so it just continues. And, uh, and like you said, William, you know, they, they might get fired. They might get written up. But these people should be brought up on charges of abuse, rape, uh, whatever you want to you, uh, you call it, whatever they, they want to uh, charge them with, because this is against a minor. This is not somebody who can make their own decision or somebody who uh, is apt to go and report these type of situations. These are minors and they should be protected no matter uh, where they're at, what facility they're in and what crime or, or uh, you know, mistake that they made as a child, they still should be protected. No, absolutely right. And uh, the, again, these are things that if you're out here on the street, we're seeing a different system of justice for correctional officers 
at the juvenile level, at the adult level, very few prosecutions for these people. They simply lose their job. There is no uh, accountability. So uh, if that is the case, then why would it why would it stop? If I can go in here as a predator, um, why would it stop? It wouldn't. It wouldn't. I mean, one of the ladies that we had on uh, uh, one of the previous shows had talked about said this is this is a environment that breeds and lives uh, with predators. I mean, predators strive. They 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 thrive in this kind of environment. This is the environment they look for. And so, like Cliff said, you know, until there's any kind of accountability. I mean, you're you're literally talking about okay, I got fired from a job. That's literally that was the outcome. But I've raped someone. But I've raped somebody. A, a girl, a little yeah, girl. Yeah, a little girl. If you were a bank teller, you stole money out of of out of the bank. Okay, you could be charged with theft, depending on the amount of money. You just, you see what I'm saying? There's yeah, and yes, you will lose your job. But this, you just lost your job. You got no charges. You got no reprimands. And, and and I think you said it. You go right to another job. You can go right to another job because this is the accepted behavior well, and conduct. No, well, there's nothing on your record that says you committed a crime. Right, but but yeah, no, that, no. What I'm saying yeah. is, is I'm agreeing with you yeah. that uh, it's that simple. If I'm not arrested or charged, but when they run my background, nothing's showing up that I just raped a girl at a facility because there's no record of what you did. Uh, that is the grave danger that we find ourselves in. And on top of that. You leave these young girls scarred for the rest of their life, may take their own life as a result of these things. This is, this is, we're going to come back to this a little bit further, uh, but right now we're honored to have Johnny Perez, uh, and uh, I'll tell you what, uh, he has going to, he's going to give us some insight on this, of what we're talking about tonight, Voices from Behind the Wall. Uh, we're going to hear from him, and uh, uh, we're, very pleas- we're, we're very happy to have uh, Ms. Perez joining us. Uh, Ms. Perez, are you with us? Yes, sir. How's it going? Thank you for having me. No, thank you for taking time out of your schedule, Ms. Perez, uh, to talk with us, to talk to our listeners about this very important topic tonight uh, as we continue our series on Voices from Behind the Wall and the horrors and the terrors that are happening in our juvenile prisons. Tonight we're dealing with juveniles that have suffered Mm -hmm. uh, behind the wall in jails Mm -hmm. as well as uh, juvenile detention centers. Why don't you introduce yourself Uh, to our and I'm going to get your thoughts on this. Go ahead, please. Sure. Uh, Once again, thank you for having me. My name is Johnny Perez. I'm the director of youth prison programs for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. We're a membership organization looking to fight human rights abuses inside of our nation's prisons. And I'm specifically focused on the different conditions of confinement, specifically solitary confinement, as it relates to juveniles, adults, and women. Uh, You know, I supervise about nine different campaigns in nine different states, all working to end like different human rights abuses behind these behind those those walls that you were just describing very recently. Um, I came into this work actually really personally. You know, I spent a total of 13 years behind bars myself. Uh, you know, from the age of a juvenile up until the age of an adult, and I've actually been working in this professional capacity for over five years now, where I bring insight through through my own personal experience, but also through my professional experience to try to just end uh, a lot of the abuses that goes on behind those concrete walls. Okay, and uh, we salute you for your work that you're doing. Uh, I'm going to play a clip right now, Mr. Perez. I want to get your thoughts on that clip that's talking about uh, uh, some of the things that are, that, are, that are happening in detention centers across this nation. So uh, I'm going to play the clip and I'm your thoughts on it. We're going to get more into, more into this uh, discussion. Let's hear the clip.
allegations of abuse inside this juvenile detention facility in Virginia. Immigrant children say they were bound, beaten, and isolated. In an exclusive interview, this teen describes his treatment at the Shenandoah Valley Juvenile Center. A man from the staff just like went at me and started attacking me. And he started to kick me like I was an animal. The teen says he fought back and was charged one time with a misdemeanor. The Associated Press agreed not to use his name or show his face. He says he came to the United States as an unaccompanied minor when he was 15 years old. When we got there, they took me into the bathroom and stripped me down so I was naked. I ended up getting put into solitary confinement for no reason. He ended up at the Virginia lockup after skirmishes with other kids. It's one of only three in the country to provide secure placement for immigrant children who had problems at other facilities. Following an AP report of first-person accounts of severe abuse by children as young as 14 that took place under both the Obama and Trump administrations, Virginia lawmakers demanded answers. There really was very abusive conditions. It's very sad. I know Governor Northam is all over it. Our senators have demanded a visit as soon as possible. Shenandoah Executive Director Timothy Smith said an internal investigation concluded the incidents described in the lawsuit filed last year are unfounded and can be, quote, readily dispelled. The facility has 58 beds and about half are occupied by male and female immigrants between the ages of 12 and 17 who are facing deportation proceedings or awaiting rulings on asylum claims. This teen left the facility in early 2017 and is now living in Oakland, California. I'd like to see it closed, that they close it, because it's not just those of us who were in there before. Kids keep coming, and some of them are just children. Officials at the Department of Health and Human Services have refused to discuss when they first learned of the abuse allegations and whether any action has been taken to determine the validity of those claims. Christopher Fourier, Associated Press. Well, there you have it. Uh, I was unaware that some of these detention centers have youngsters that are in immigration situations. How are youngsters being deported? I'm confused. Mr. Perez, help us with this. So we're talking about a facility that is housing ICE uh, or ICE's I mean, immigration issues, uh, but they're, they're under age. How are they in an yeah. American detention center? Yeah, so we actually see that. So that's actually pretty common, and that is really due to space. You know, um, you'll have a lot of detention centers who will use parts of their detention centers to, you know, house people who are facing, you know, immigration consequences while at the same time serving out sentences for breaking, you know, uh, like, you know, the, the, the penal law. You know, and, and it's funny because as I'm thinking about that clip, as I'm listening to the clip, I'm automatically thinking about how we live in a country where, you know, um, like we believe someone when they say that they're guilty inside of court, but once they're inside, we don't believe them when they're facing atrocities and different abuses of this kind. And, and this is particularly specifically for young folks who, you know, like as adults, we don't tend to take them seriously or we don't believe them. But this just makes them more susceptible to being abused behind those walls. You know, I think about I think about the judge in Philadelphia a while back who was actually receiving money for every single juvenile that he sent to a juvenile facility. You know, I think about another. I think about a young kid in New York who you know was recently placed in solitary for a total of like 
three months for shooting a spitball at a correction officer. And then the other side of that is that there's little to no meaningful screening for correction officers that are going into these spaces. So you'll find that these, the, the abuses happen at the hands of the same people that are supposed to protect these young people, but because we deem them to be throwaway people or, you know, you know and I know it's not unique to this administration, but there is this fear narrative about, you know, immigrants and what they look like, what they do, why they're here, you know, and things of that nature. We tend to discount and dis- discount exactly what they say to us when they say when they say it. And as a result, you'll find young, really young folks who are placed in juvenile detention facilities who are facing who are uh, uh, abused regularly for years at a time before someone finally uncovers it. And by the time you uncover it, it's really too late in a lot of different cases. You know, unfortunately, and now, you know, we're in a place where, you know, um, the burden of criminal responsibility has been raised in a lot of different states at the age of 18 and higher, but we still live in a country that sentences juveniles to life without parole. You know, we still live in a country where kids transition from foster care directly into detention centers. And in this case, you know, especially now around the entire fear around ICE and immigration and things of that nature, people are just being detained, not for anything that they did, but because of who they are. And unfortunately, that's just not in line with our values that we say that we stand for. Well, and, and, and these are values that we thought. You know, I'm starting to come really come to the fact mm-hmm. that America has set these values down. I mean, if somebody is an immigrant, guess what? You know who a kid is. You know what kids are. Mm-hmm. We know who kids yeah. we know, You know what I mean? And to be put in solitary confinement for 90 days. Three months. Mm-hmm. We talk about the impact of solitary confinement with adults. You put a kid in there yeah. for nine days, and then you wonder why so, when all go ahead, go ahead, uh, Ms. Perez. No, that's that's such a strong point because that's part of the work that I do. It's like you know, studies show that you know the human brain is not fully developed until about the age of twenty-five. Yet we live in a country that routinely places kids, children. I mean, my daughter is seventeen you know, places kids in complete isolation. And for the listeners who have never been in solitary, don't know what's solitary, I'll quickly say that you're in a place for 23, a lot of times 24 hours a day, in a place no bigger than you just stretching your hands out far and you can touch both walls. You have little to no meaningful human contact. You have three small meals a day, you know, um, and, and, and the light stays on all day, and you get to really not interact with anyone else. And people spend not only months there, but also years. Absolutely. Absolutely. We got a caller, uh, I believe, Cliff. Yes, we have uh, Michelle who has a comment. Uh, Michelle, you're live. Thank you. I think that the host Lamont made such a critical point that we don't understand as a society what it feels like to be in prison. People are so quick to just say throw mm-hmm. away the key, put them up under the jail. When, the, when we don't think about how would I feel if I had no real contact with my family, I was told when to get up, mm-hmm. when to eat, when to take a shower, when to go to sleep. They have lost their freedom. And I think we take mm-hmm. for granted that they're just in there and that they're having some type of good time or something. To throw mm-hmm. abuse on top of that, we have lost our humanity if we, if we even see these kids that are suffering. These are kids, just like someone was saying. Whether it was an adult or a child, we as a society should be outraged with the abuse that's going on, and we yeah. keep hearing it. But I thought he made such a critical point. We don't understand what it feels like to have lost our freedom. People are always mm-hmm. talking about it. We need to think about what that truly means, and maybe we'll start having compassion for these people who are abused mm-hmm. in the system. Thank you for your time. Mm-hmm. And thanks for the call. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Listen to this fact. ICE has reported 1,310 claims of sexual abuse against detainees from fiscal 2013 to 2017, mm-hmm. and those are all teenagers. Wow. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, Mr. Perez, yeah. this, these things are yeah. outrageous. This is outrageous. I see why uh, you do what you do. Uh, why organizations need to come together and work together to inform the American people across this country. Something ha- Again, outrage has to take place. If we're not outraged by kids dying, kids being sexually abused, that's, it, it's, it's uncomprehendable to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to the caller's point, like, you know, we live in a country where we send people to prison or juvenile detention or any type of detention facility. We send them to prison as punishment, not for punishment. But oftentimes how it happens in practice is that we punish them on top of the punishment, you know, like, Losing your freedom, not being able to hug your mother, not being able to hug your sister, sit at the dinner table, that is punishment within itself. But then we, of course, you know, exact more punishment on top of that. And I think part of the problem is because we, you know, we, we as a society, we intentionally banish people from society. When you think about detention centers and where they're placed at, they're really usually placed away from cities in places where you can't see them, so out of sight, out of mind, right? And then we give complete autonomy and discretion to correction officers or detainer officers who are not properly trained, who may themselves have different uh, criminal inclinations that we haven't really assessed, uh, uh, even understand because we haven't properly assessed them. And then we put these kids in their care, you know, and then when, you know, these different abuses pop up, we ignore them until the elephant in the room becomes just so loud that it's difficult to ignore. Then the lawsuits come and things like that. And then we finally lift the veil and find out, wow, this has been going on for years. You know, but then we also find that the complaints have been going on for years, but they've gone unheard and unnoticed. You know, the people inside of these systems are not voiceless. Is that they've been intentionally muted and marginalized, you know, and very intentionally in a lot of different ways, you know, from upper-level correctional staff, you know, all the way to society that sometimes turns a blind eye because, you know, to the caller's point, again, we just don't know how it feels to be inside of these correctional settings and be completely powerless. You know, and to be able to, you know, to want to wanna voice the concern about, you know, you and how you're being treated, but then to turn around and be threatened with either more time in prison, be threatened with violence, you know, be threatened with having your visits cut off, you know, and a host of other kind of threats that, that routinely happen inside of these facilities. Well, I agree with you, Mr. Perez. You got a few minutes you can come back with us? We're going to take a quick break. Sure. You got a few minutes? All right. Sure, We're going to be yeah. talking about a father says jail guards have permission to abuse children. We're going to get into that story on the other side of this break. Coming back with our special guest, Mr. Johnny Perez, and uh, I'll tell you what, Director of U.S. Prison Program. Is that correct, Ms. Perez? Ms. Perez, are you with us? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. I was muted. Yes. Uh, yes, I am. Oh, okay, and we're going, to, we're going to come back and get more from you. This is AJC Radio, Voices from Behind the Wall. We hear from the children. Juvenile horror stories continue. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. 
By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. Let's just be honest. When we look across the street to the Supreme Court and we see equal justice under law, um, when you have drug laws so severely, disparately enforced against some groups, let's let's take African Americans, for example, there's no difference between black and white marijuana usage or marijuana sales, in fact. But blacks are about 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for it. Um, African Americans are more likely to get uh, mandatory minimums, are more likely about 13 to get 13% longer sentences, and it's created these jagged disparities in incarceration. In my state, blacks are about 13, 14% of the population, and make up over 60% of the prison population. And remember, the overall majority of people we arrest in America are nonviolent offenders. Now you've got this this disparity in the arrest, but that creates disparities that painfully fall all along the system. When you get arrested uh, for possession with intent to sell, do it in inner city, now you're within a school zone. So now you have faced an even higher mandatory minimum. Now you're 19 years old with a felony conviction, possession, intent to sell in a school zone. Forget even all that. You just have a felony conviction for possession. What do you face now? Thousands of collateral consequences that will dog you for the rest of your life. You can't get a Pell Grant. You can't get business licenses. You can't get a job. You're hungry, can't get food stamps. Uh, You need a place to live, you can't even get public housing. And what that does is created within our country concentrated areas where you have massive levels of men being incarcerated. You create a caste system in which people feel like there's no way out. And we're not doing anything as a society like we know we could do because there's tons of pilot programs that show if you help people when they are coming back from a nonviolent offense, that their recidivism rates go dramatically down. If you don't help them, what happens is, left with limited options, many people make a decision to go back into that world of of narcotics sales. Uh, uh, What's more dangerous to society? Someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their own home or somebody going 30 miles over the speed limit, racing down a road in, in a community? What is more dangerous to society? But yet that teenager who makes a mistake for doing things the last three presidents admitted to doing, Now they have a felony conviction because it's more likely they're going to get caught. And for the rest of their life, they're 29, 39, 49, 59, they're still paying for a mistake they made as a teenager. Now, that's not the kind of society uh, that I believe in, nor is it fiscally responsible. It's undermining their productivity, undermining their ability to take care of their family. This is so wrong that those conversations that I'm having with conservatives as well as uh, Democrats uh, are resonating. And so when you have people like Rand Paul standing up 
and talking about racial disparities in incarceration. This convergence in understanding uh, of fiscal conservatives, of Christian conservatives, of libertarians, shows me that this is a time of great hope for our country. And so I'm not going to question people's motives. This is one of those issues like the civil rights movement in the 1960s, where it should pull all Americans together to say enough is enough. Broken down and tired of living life on America. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio. Tonight, the voices from behind the wall. The series continues as tonight we do part two of our juveniles that are suffering in juvenile detention centers across this nation. It's, it's a tragedy. This is something that America needs to rise up. Organizations need to rise up and let your voice be heard for the voiceless. These types of terror, these types of horrors will continue until the voices of the people, family members, say we will not tolerate a sweeping under the rug, if you will, of abuse of our youngsters in this nation. We live in a society where if there are mistakes made, there are remedies to those mistakes, to youngsters, and tonight we deal with that. Do we get to the core of the problem? Do we get to the core issue of what causes youngsters to become uh, troubled youth, if you will, at-risk youth? What, what are the causes? Why have we not visited that? Why have we not had that conversation? Uh, we're very happy to have uh, Johnny Perez back with us, director of U.S. Prisons uh, Program. Uh, and uh, Johnny, thanks for being, coming back with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We appreciate that. And uh, let me share something with you. Uh, this is a story research uh, just sent us. Immigrant children as young as 14 housed at a juvenile detention center in Virginia say they were beaten while handcuffed and locked up for long periods uh, in solitary confinement, left nude and shivering in concrete cells. Multiple detainees say the guards stripped them out of their clothes, strapped them to chairs with bags placed over their heads. And whenever they used to restrain me and put me in the chair, they would handcuff me, said a Honduran immigrant who was sent to the facility when he was 15 years old. They also put a bag over your head. Mm -hmm. But no no charges. Mm -hmm. And this is, look, we know that prisoners of war, prisoners of war who we know who our enemies are, are not treated to this level of abuse because the, the, the uh, uh, Geneva Conventions forbids that. You can't torture even prisoners of war, but America is putting our children, are they putting youngsters, whether they're immigrants or not, where, why would you strap a kid to a chair, put a bag over his head and handcuff him? What possibly are you we're not even trying to gather information. Fifteen years old. That's cool and use no punishment. Yeah. Absolutely. How do we get away with that, Johnny? How, how are people just? Yeah, I think away? it's a definitely. Yeah, I think it's definitely a grotesque violation of you know, like you know, your Fourth Amendment rights to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. 
or, you know, I also say Eighth Amendment rights to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. You know, and the other piece you say about, you know, your analogy about war, you know, and I would argue that we are at war. I think that our country has waged war on immigrants, you know, and this is, and this is, we're seeing the aftermath. And unfortunately, because it's not in our faces every day, when we do hear about these cases, you know, if we're not outraged, we should be, you know. Um, some of us are parents, and just imagine your own child in that situation, feeling hopeless, and you know, not even probably not even be able to understand the language that's being spoken, you know. And then as a parent, like, what would you want to see happen? But even if you wasn't, even if you weren't a parent, you know, I think that when we dig deep into our own moral, you know, uh, compass, you know, we can definitely say without without hesitation that this is not the way that we want to treat other human beings. And more importantly, there is a way to hold people accountable and still treat them humanely, except that I would ask, what is it that we're holding a 15-year-old Hungarian kid whose only crime has been probably entering a country with their parents? You know, um, you know, like what does accountability look like for him or her? You know, and, and it's unfortunate that, you know, our legislators, you know, lack the political courage to really hold these people accountable. Part of the reason this happens is because there's little to no oversight. You know, they know they can get away with this. You know, I think about a case, I think about uh, a case here in New York where I live at, you know, Khalif Browder really quickly, he was accused, at 16 years old, accused of staying a backpack. And that ended up costing him his life, three years in prison, three years in, three years in, in jail, two years in solitary confinement, right? And then finally, when he died, when he passed away, you know, actually when he committed suicide, you know, everyone was pointing the finger at each other, and the, the, the public was outraged, but the fact of the matter is that this routinely happens. This probably happening right now as we speak, as you listen to this call, and as, you, as we have this conversation, it's happening right now. So we have to hold our political leaders, we have to hold them accountable, we have to hold them morally accountable, you know, to the values that they say they stand for and hold their feet to the fire. If not, then we need to not elect them and bring them back. Oh, absolutely right. And listen to this. A six-year-old girl was sexually abused. Let me say that again. A six-year-old girl was sexually abused in an immigrant detention center separated from her mother uh, by the zero-tolerance policy. The child was forced to sign a statement confirming that she understood it was her responsibility to stay away from her abuser. She's six years old. You have a six-year-old kid girl young girl signing are you are you kidding me right now six years old she's been on the planet for six years uh separated from her mother uh again under the zero tolerance uh policy sexually abused while at an arizona detention facility run by southwest key programs the child was then made to sign a form acknowledging she was told to maintain her distance uh, will a six-year-old even understand that? It's not even enforceable. Will a, will a six-year-old not go to a contract? That they, have no, they have no sense of, of a six-year-old kid. No, you can't do that. I mean, that, they, they're still trying to grasp what's right and wrong. And says here, the girl is only identified by the initial DL, and her mother had been fleeing gang violence in their native country of Guatemala. According to the family, the pair entered the United States at a point of entry in El Paso, Texas on May 24th, where they presented Border Patrol authorities with paperwork claiming they had had credible fear that returning to Guatemala would result in harm. On May 26th, government officials separated DL from her mother and sent her to Casa Glendale, a shelter outside of Phoenix operated by Southwest 
key programs, it was there that the alleged abuse occurred. But the nightmare wasn't over. On June 22nd, Southwest Key again contacted DL's father and informed him that the same boy initially cited for abuse had hit and funneled DL again. According to Lane, DL's father asked how the facility could allow this to happen, and the woman on the phone responded that she was only calling him to advise him that it had happened, that she didn't have permission to say anything else, and he would have to speak with the director. Then what are you doing on the telephone? If you can't, you, you, mean, you mean to tell me, you, you're making a call. Oh, by the way, let me just throw this at you. Your daughter just got assaulted again. Uh, that's all I can tell you. That's the information you're going to give a parent of a six-year-old daughter. This is uncomprehendable to me. This is yeah. uncomprehendable. Go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. uh, Johnny. No, I'm just, like, resonating and, like, really taking that in, you know. And these cases are, like, really difficult to take in. And, of course, we always ask, like, how and why and how is this possible? You know, and I'll, and I, and I'll go back to the point of lack, lack of transparency also equals a lack of accountability. In other words, if we do not know what's going on, and we can't address it. And the problem with any correctional institution and setting is that there's really difficult to get information out of the correctional setting institution because it's a whole nother world, you know, and because there's little to no oversight, you know, it's hard to hold them accountable as to who's doing what, when it happens, you know, and oftentimes when we find out about it, it's often just too late, you know, um, as is a lot of the cases that we're talking about now. And the question is how can we prevent this from happening in the future, and how can we stop it now, you know? Um, and, and, again, and I think that part of that is, you know, not only holding our legislators accountable, you know, also for the families who uh, have their kids who have been impacted to not only share their kids' experiences, but their experiences to raise the public consciousness about what's happening, to put it right in the forefront. You know, we can't ignore the elephant in the room. You know, we have to speak about it. You know, and then the other piece that we haven't talked about, but I, I think that is really crucial to this conversation, is that there is a racial component here. You know, when you look at who's in prison, you know, who's overrepresented in, inside of these settings, you know, inside of these correctional settings and these ICE settings, like, you know, which countries are purposely and, and intentionally being targeted, you know, um, you know, it speaks to, like, hey, like, there, there are bigger forces and intentions here at play, and it's unfortunate and, and sad and not even representative of who we are, you know, to have these kids being treated in such a way, you know, um, it's just really, 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 really sad. And what I can't get out of my mind is a little girl, six years old, being told to sign a piece. Can she even sign her name at six years old? Not at all. I I am baffled. And not only does she get assaulted once, she gets, you understand, you ripped, this girl is nowhere near her parents. She has to be terrified. Mm-hmm. Where's mommy? Where's daddy? Mm-hmm. And they have to mm-hmm. suffer an assault? And we say the system yeah. in this country works? I have news for you. It doesn't work. How many people, do you understand the scars that that little girl will carry for the rest of her life? Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this country doing these things, enabling these people to continue over and over again. And these are what, like you said, Johnny, this is happening probably while we're on this show tonight. Somebody's being assaulted in a center. Somebody may be trying to kill themselves in a juvenile detention center because they just can't take it anymore. We read stories last week. 12, 13, 14-year-old youngsters 
hanging from a bunk while an officer comes in and takes pictures while he is still alive. Could have saved his life. He's hanging from his bunk. She doesn't call for help. She doesn't call for medical whatever. She takes pictures while he dies hanging from that bunk. Are you kidding me? And nobody can be held accountable for that? That's unbelievable. William. No, I'm still... I'm just thinking about this little girl, you know, and, and, you know, any father can, can look at this and you, you have the innocence of this child now that's been violated. I mean, usually they're, they're, they're fun. They're free hearted. They're looking for some, you know, someone to play with or something like that. And now this predator, and then, like you said, for, for the father to be notified over the phone. And I can't tell you, it, I mean, there's no co- compassion. There's no concern. I'm just letting you know. This happened to your child. Your six-year-old daughter. Your six-year-old daughter. I can't. And then to, to ask this child to sign something, this child is just now playing with crayons. But, she, yeah. but you know, I mean, you think about this. This is what we're talking about. And what was the point? It was to cover up this abuse. And what now this, this, the father's thinking, like you said, what the, the daughter will face for the rest of her life, the scars that she will face from six years old. Cool. I just, I can't, I can't comprehend this. And, but, but Mr. Perez, you know, I wanted to go back to one of the comments that you had said too, and I'm glad that you brought it up, which was the racial aspect of this. Most of the people that we, you know, we've talked about when we talk about ISIS, I mean, excuse me, ICE, we talk about the immigration issue. We talk, you know, these are people of color that are coming across the border. And they're immediately, you know, here, they're, they're unaccompanied minors here. They're being pulled apart from their, uh, from their association. Now, they, and like you said, most of them don't even speak English. They're now thrown into these detention centers. So now they're struggling with a new country, a language that they don't know, they're pro- they're, and the cruelty nature of the people that are around them, which are no doubt manipulating them because, well, he doesn't speak English. You know, you can hear the harshness of, you know, you should learn the language. I mean, this is the kind of things that are going on. And like you said, it's happening right now as we're talking about it. And, and, but I, I want to say thank you for bringing that aspect up. Yeah, it's very real. I mean, ask yourself this: Are we are we policing the Canadian border the same way which we're policing the Mexican border? You know, I would argue no. You know, um, you know, so I, you know, it's 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 you know, people of color, of course, are overrepresented there, but also even more likely to find themselves in solitary, more likely to be convicted, more likely to face the death penalty, more likely to be killed at the at the hands of the state because we do live in a country where we routinely kill people. You know, um, you know that's what the difference is, and then, and then more importantly, you know, when we discount an entire class of people, not because of what they've done, but because of who they are, and then turn a blind eye when these abuses happens, then we're definitely not in a place that is reflective of our values. You know, and people should be outraged. If you're not outraged, you should be. 
right? And then most importantly, taking that energy and channeling that energy to support existing efforts seeking to end a lot of these, like, human rights abuses and atrocities. You know, one of the things that we're trying to do now at the National Religious Campaign Against Torture is to infuse the faith voice in these conversations right at the border to hold our legislators morally accountable to the values that they say they stand for and say, hey, this is not who we are, not only as a people individually, but also as a country. And more importantly, this country was founded on immigration. Like, this country was founded on being able to seek prosperity and success and to escape oppression. You know, and to your point earlier, some people would argue that, hey, the system is working exactly the way it was meant to be. Some people would say that, hey, the system, the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system was created to marginalize people of color, to keep those in power in power, and to keep those who are powerless even more powerless. And now here it is years later, we're seeing the ramifications of, you know, the, the worst side of that. You know, are there people in society who need to be held accountable for their actions? Absolutely, yes. Now, do we need to treat them like animals and inhumanely and abuse them while we hold them accountable? I would argue no, and that we can definitely take a different route. No, absolutely right. Couldn't, Johnny, I mean, the point is well taken. Uh, these are things that people have to look in the mirror and pay attention to. Especially on July 27th, the attorney will argue in federal court that the stations and facilities housing children are failing to meet the basic standards for hygiene, food, sleeping conditions, and medical care. And it says here, for breakfast, Dixiana, a child, says a guard gave her a frozen ham sandwich but failed to bring her and her cellmates water. The ham was black, she told her lawyer. I took one bite and did not eat the rest because of the taste. Now we're giving kids frozen sandwiches? What? And we need to find out what facility that is. Uh... Are you kidding me? A frozen ham. How is a kid supposed to eat that? Matter of fact, how is an adult supposed to eat that? This this is the stuff, uh, Johnny, that we talk about, as you said earlier, this is cruel and unusual punishment. This is, I believe it goes beyond that threshold. This is is psychotic, in my opinion. Indeed, and I would add, you know, I would add one of the points that we haven't touched yet is there is a huge profit motive here. You know, like these detention facilities are usually privately run, you know, um, where people who run these facilities privately, companies, whether it's GEO Group, you know, or CCA, you know, they're receiving money for each individual person who walks through those doors. And even in some states, these correctional facilities have actually sued the state for not keeping their end of the bargain to keep a 80% or 75% occupancy rate. And I would, and I would argue, how do you guarantee an 80% occupancy rate inside of a jail? You know, this is the reason why prison stock went up 500% overnight the minute that Trump went into, into, into office. Why? Because people knew that the laws would change in such a way in which would guarantee a steady influx of people. And for the listeners, all they had to do is Google prison detention center auction, and they will see exactly some insight about how these auctions, how these prisons are sold, how they talk about the people that are going to be in there, how they're going to be treated. You know, and of course, people in private prisons are held statistically a whole lot longer than people in state-run prisons. But there's not enough state-run prisons, so we, so the, the, the government has to depend on privately run for-profit companies, in this case, private detention centers, in this case, detention facilities for people with immigration challenges or issues. Well, it says here that so, yeah, people are making money off of this. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's turned into big business. This is big business, and when business outweighs human decency, uh, we have failed as a nation. 
uh, there's just certain things you don't put a price tag on human well, life. That's and it, it, it's something that continues. Let me follow up on Dixiana. It says after 12 hours, Dixiana was transferred to what she calls the para Spanish for doghouse, a reference to the chain link fencing where she could see her mom in another cell. At one point, she was half asleep. Dixiana says a male officer kicked her awake while looking for a girl with a similar name to hers. Over the course of the next few days, she sat in a windowless cell with no idea if it was day or night, crying because she missed her mother. Outrageous. Uh, Johnny, we're going to take a quick break. If you can come back, I'm going to let you give information. I don't want to, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're in New York there, uh, but I'd like to give you, give you an opportunity to give some closing remarks to our listeners uh, and how they can get involved with your organization. Come back with us after this break. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And there you have it, folks. Johnny Perez, give us some really clear insight uh, on what we're talking about. Voices from behind the wall, detention centers across this nation. Uh, the stories get worse and worse. And we will continue to be the voice for the children tonight as we deal with juvenile prisons and jails and the treatment of kids across this nation. This is AJC Radio. Voices from Behind the Wall continues after this. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters, our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. You don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. I wanted to be in the military since I was a a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said, I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You gotta find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. 
are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can have value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we fight and speak for the children across this nation in detention centers that are suffering abuse at horrific uh, levels uh, and the horror of what these children are suffering. We talk a lot about what the adults are going through, through prisons and jails across this nation, and the Voices from Behind the Wall series continues indefinitely at this point as we really roll back the curtain, if you will, and let folks see uh, exactly what's going on in these facilities. We've been honored to have Johnny Perez with us. Uh, on this show, director of U.S. Prisons Program, and he's given some really true insight. Johnny, I appreciate your perspective uh, on these things, and, and we're glad to have you on this program with us tonight to, to shine light on that as well. We appreciate that. Thank you for having me. I want to share this story very quickly. Father says jail guards have permission to abuse children. Uh, states here, uh, this is April 23rd, 2018, this year, a father in Florida claimed jail guards have permission to abuse children after a former juvenile detention center officer was cleared of charges for punching a 14-year-old boy in the face while the boy was in custody, breaking his nose in two places. 
In a memo signed earlier this month, prosecutors from the Broward State Attorney's Office said former officer Dale Bryant was justified in his use of force and actions against Andrew uh, Ostrowski while the teen was jailed at the Broward Regional Juvenile Detention Center for allegedly joyriding in his father's Dodge van in January. The Miami Herald reported that Brian, who later resigned but won't face charges in the incident, told police in Fort Lauderdale that the incident started with the 5-foot-6-inch, 120-pound teen tried to fight another juvenile detainee and got combative with responding staffers. Let me stop there really quickly. 5-6, 120-pounds. And now, I don't know where, he, where they come up with that the officer is justified. He's justified to break up the fight if something is going on in the facility. But to punch this youngster in his face and break his nose in two places, if that's how they have to combat fights, then you know what? People are going to be getting assaulted everywhere. And furthermore, if you did nothing wrong, why did you resign? Why am I resigning from my position? That doesn't make an ounce of sense. If I'm justified, I should still have my job. Well, the reason they they give him that justification, it goes back to no accountability. They say, well, you can go ahead and resign. Uh, and, you know, if you leave your job, then we won't do whatever. We won't uh, bring any disciplinary action, but you resign. But the problem is, is that this same man can go to another facility and say, well, hey, I have experience being a corrections officer of this many years. I've dealt with uh, juveniles, adults whatever he has to say and get hired at another place. And since it's not on his record that, Oh, he, uh, he uh, basically assaulted this kid. Then he goes to another facility and does the same thing all over again. That is the problem. The, the lack of accountability, the lack of bringing these correctional officers up on uh, charges. And also, I mean, should just go right up the chain. That if you if if you get caught and you haven't uh, brought charges against your correction officers, then all the way up to the person who's running that facility, they should be brought up on charges. They should be brought up on sanctions and and uh, more importantly, exposed to the public so that the public knows this is who is abusing your children. And, And sure, your child may have done something wrong. These are kids. They are they are coming into uh, basically coming into themselves, trying to figure out who they are as they go into adulthood. They're still children, and the public needs to know this is who this is who is behind the wall in these facilities abusing our children. And with that type of accountability, I guarantee you those levels of abuse will stop. And I'm going to get your thoughts here, Johnny, in a moment. I want to read this very quickly. Brian, according to a report of the incident on February 12th, 2017 said Andrew punched him after he refused to stand against a wall. Bryant then redirected the team to the ground. But in a video obtained by the newspaper, Bryant is seen grabbing the team by the arm before tossing him to the floor. Bryant then punched the team in the face as he tried to resist, according to, to the report. According to Bryant, the single punch was delivered in order to gain compliance from Andrew and was reasonable and necessary due to the aggression of the youth. 5'6". 120 pounds. I add that to the story. The report said, based upon Bryant being an authority figure at the facility whose mandate is to control the juvenile detainees when certain situations arise, for instance, when one detainee is attempting to attack another, an employee must utilize force to gain compliance. But you don't, you broke his nose in two places. What happened to the other 
kid that he was getting in the fight with. They always try to tell the one-sided story that we just had to punch him in his face and break this youngster's nose, man. I don't care how they try to justify that. It's a bunch of it's a bunch yeah. of hogwash. That's what it is. Yeah. Johnny, your thoughts? Yeah, as, you know, and, and to, to respond to that better, I'm actually going to lean on my own experience, you know, being incarcerated as a juvenile. I'll tell you that a lot of the correction officers actually lack the same type of self-control that the people that they're, you know, uh, overseeing do, you know. And, you know, it's, it's a completely understandable for a 14 or 15, 16-year-old for us to understand why they would have, like, impulse control or an appetite for risk. But the adults that we place, you know, that we give the, the power to oversee these young, these young folks, you know, uh, we have to hold them to a higher standard. And, you know, by law, they're supposed to use the least amount of force in order to eliminate the threat of violence. And oftentimes what happens is exactly what you just said. You know, of course, they'll sort of show up to the scene, you know, and literally just, like, fight everyone, you know, um, uh, you know, and then later on, you know, figure out what's what later on, you know. Uh, and there's been a lot of times that course officers have actually been responsible for, you know, putting, you know, people of opposing gangs or opposing views together in the same space and then betting on the fights. This just recently happened in upstate correctional facility uh, uh, here in upstate New York, you know, where these folks are purposely putting people in the line of violence and, and under the threat of violence and, and in the line of danger, you know. And the, the part of it is that it, by the time that we hold these correctional officers accountable or what accountability looks like, it just looks like a transfer to another facility where they in turn turn around and do, you know, continue to behave in, 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 the, in, 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 in the same way, you know. And, you know, we have to fire these people. There is no training. There is no, there is no you know, a, a transfer them to another facility where they can perpetuate the same cycle of violence. You know, it's that we need better screening practices and we need policies that reflect that. And more importantly, we need political leaders who are also willing to make that ask and hold these correctional officials accountable to the true letter of the law. No, I agree with you, Johnny. And listen, I want to thank yeah. you for your perspective. And we want to definitely have you back on this show. We'd like to talk more uh, in detail about your experience, some of those experiences at Rikers, uh, what you saw. I know you, you had mentioned, without mentioning, Khalif Browder. We, we talked about him, had his yeah. brother on. I came uh, last yeah. week. We gave a really good picture yeah. of that. So uh, we appreciate what you're doing. Uh, please know you have an ally here in the Just Cause and AJC Radio. As we come together yeah. uh, to fight injustice and these type of things, uh, anything we can do to help uh, your organization, any time you need a platform to get out to listeners and the masses, please don't hesitate to contact us, uh, and we'll definitely uh, go forward with that as well. We appreciate you. How can folks get a hold of you? How can people get involved with your organization to help make a difference? Absolutely. I really appreciate, you know, creating a space for, you know, to be able to add value to this conversation. And people can find out more work about the National Religious Campaign Against Torture at the following website, which is www.nrcat.org. That's nrcat.org. And people can reach me personally just at felonyssareforever.com. Okay, and uh, we're definitely going to definitely, Johnny, be in touch with you offline. Uh, I'll definitely get a hold of you. I'd like to have a further discussion with you and see what we can do to work together uh, to to, to bring this information. Uh, And I I think that's the perfect word. This is torture, what we have uh, talked about tonight. It definitely needs to stop. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Uh, And, again, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of AJC Radio on this program tonight. We appreciate it so much. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for raising these issues, and thank you for having me. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Have a good rest of your night. Okay, you too. All right, there you have it, folks. Johnny Perez, director of U.S. Prison. Prison, and, and I'll tell you what, William, give us some clear perspective. Uh, what he's talking about, uh, passion, very passionate about what he's saying, and he's calling it what it is, and that's what, that is what is respectable. Call it what it is. There is torture going on in these prisons, and tonight as we focus on juveniles, uh, this, is, there are to- there, this is torture. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, he brought up, I think, two key points uh, about this that, that we hadn't really touched on, which was, number one, I, I mean, we've talked about, you know, the aspect of race when we talk about imprisonment. We've, we've talked about that, and we've talked about it they were on several shows. We've talked about uh, since disparities and things like that, but that, that is definitely true. And then he also talked about private prisons, Absolutely. you know, and, we, and we've had a couple of clips. I remember one clip that was talking about an unregistered facility that had been operating for four years where a, a youth, uh, I think he died there, um, kind of the same situation where he was a, a, a teenage kid that was, uh, you know, five foot, 100 pounds and, and had gotten into an altercation, things like that, and died. But no one, no, one, no one is going to challenge the fact that, okay, well, here's a, a unlicensed or unregistered facility that's been operating for four years. Yep. And what's the ramifications of that? And so then you, we, so these are just more aspects that we're talking about that makes this this whole this whole criminal justice system fall apart more and more when you start adding the aspect of greed into it, you know, and that's the biggest thing. These people are motivated by money. That's all it is. That that's why you have poor health care. You have uh, food that's not fit for human consumption, and you basically have a facility there that's just to house people. No, absolutely right. We're going to be dealing with all these issues, folks. Feel free again. To tune into our programs, uh, the voices from behind the wall. There's a petition as well that changed our Lord. Go out there, sign the petition as we raise these issues and get as many signatures as we can to implement change. That is our whole focus. That is our purpose. And your voice should be heard. Your signature should be on that petition. If you're not about kids, if you're not about adults, if you're not about people being tortured in America's prisons and jails and people are dying, your signature should be on that petition. Go to change.org. Type in voices from behind the wall, and uh, we will continue to have this discussion. On the other side of the break, we're coming back. Voices from behind the wall, juvenile prisons and suffering is happening in a big way in this country. We're going to be talking about Imani, her story out of, out of Syracuse, New York. We'll be right back. This is AJC Radio. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison... Life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children, 
as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. When does it stop being partly cloudy and start being partly sunny? Why is the word abbreviation so long? Are English muffins just muffins in England? Why is it called a washing line and not a drying line? Do fish get thirsty? If ghosts can walk through doors, why don't they fall through floors? Do you yawn when you sleep? If prunes are dried plums, how do they make prune juice? Why do doctors leave the room when you change? They're going to see you naked anyway. Do bald chefs wear hairnets? How much deeper would the ocean be if all the sponges were taken out? Do you believe someone who says they're a chronic liar? Why is sandwich bread square and sandwich meat round? Life's full of hard questions. Ask one more. You might just save a life. does our justice system get it wrong convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit a new project by the university of michigan law school and the center for wrongful convictions at northwestern university school of law tries to answer that question in the last 23 years more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated according to the national registry of exonerations by far the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors.
And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Voices from Behind the Wall continues tonight as we talk about our youngsters behind the wall of juvenile detention centers, children, if you will, uh, really being tortured. Solitary confinement, you name it, uh, is going on across this nation, and America should be ashamed of herself as we have allowed and enabled this type of abuse to continue in our nation. Uh, But we're going to be dealing with that and uncovering these stories uh, and here's one that you need to listen to. When the police approached Imani and her friends outside of Syracuse, New York, dollar store in 2016, she wasn't worried. She didn't believe that they had done anything wrong. But a clerk at the store had accused the group of stealing. And Imani, then 16 years old, was arrested and charged with robbery. Unable to afford bail, she waited for her day in court in a maximum security adult jail. Imani, petite and wiry, is small for her age. At the Onaga County Justice Center, she was constantly cold. The single jail issued a blanket doing little to keep her warm. After arguing with the guard over a grievance she had filed, she was promptly moved to the solitary confinement wing of the jail. She said her meals were fed to her through a slot in the door, and her recreation time was spent outside in what seemed to be like a cage for a dog. Imani said the Marshall Project and, and WNYC are not using her real name, because her juvenile record is sealed. I'm ready to come home, she thought to herself, as hours turned to days in isolation. Solitary confinement is not allowed for inmates younger than 18 at federal and state-run facilities in New York. But for teens like Amani held in a county jail waiting for their cases to be heard, it's a common practice. It made me feel like nothing like an animal, Amani said, of her 32 days spent in solitary can't call anybody, can't talk to nobody, you just feel worthless. In 2016, the last year for which records are available, more than 3,700 16- to 17-year-olds were held in jail in New York's 57 counties outside of New York City. It is difficult to know precisely how many are placed in isolation because county jails are not required to track the age of inmates locked in isolation. Do you believe that? William? I, I can't. I mean, I you just get to the point where you, you can't believe what you're hearing. I mean, it, it's real. It is, but you know, this is so. I, I think. I, I think what you one of the things you said uh, in that clip you were talking or you, as you were reading it, it says state run facilities. They cannot hold a child in solitary confinement under the age of eighteen. Is that, that did I hear that correctly? Correct. Yep. But. You know, and they find ways to get around this stuff. They find ways, you know, well, we don't record the age, so we don't really know what we... You knew, you know that person, you know the details of the person that is there in your care, you know the inmate, you know the prisoner. Why is this? Why is this? And I don't understand, I just, I really just don't understand, and, and that when you put these people in these types of environments, and you just justify ways and and reasons to be cruel. That's what it really is. You justify doing it. It's sad, real sad. No, absolutely right. These are things that uh, you you start to wonder, is this America? Is this the United States of America doing these things? And here is why it is critical to be a voice for the voiceless. They don't have a voice. Uh, Johnny Perez made it clear. Their voices have been muted. So they are not heard. 
But these stories somehow is going to get out, and we as an organization will not cease to get the word out and to be a voice for those who have been silenced behind the wall. There's no telling how many threats are made. If you say anything, this will happen. If you report anything, this will happen. Acts of retaliation, acts of abuse of power, we must speak out against this. And you have kids. This is what it, it's bad for an adult. But you have kids in solitary confinement. You left this girl in solitary confinement for 32 days. 32 days? And her recognition of going outside is exactly right. You're walking in, out of one cell into another. You just happen to have some airborne on you. You're just outside in a cage. You might as well be at the county zoo because that's how they treat you. This is, this is a tragic situation. We're going to continue to expose it. Uh, and for what they did, and I'm still, ladies and gentlemen, stuck on the six-year-old girl having to sign her name. And our research team found that the only thing she signed for her name on this, this bogus contract was the letter D. That, that tells you how young she was. Six? Six years old. And we sit back and continue to say, oh, this is the greatest justice system in the world. We have the greatest system. It's nothing like it. When we start abusing six-year-old kids, we have the best system abusing children. Most foreign countries, most foreign countries, you're not going to find a lot of that where kids are abused like that in those jails out of, the, out of this uh, uh, nation. You don't see that with kids. These are children. And you wonder why people look at America from time to time and say, is this hypocrisy? We talk about human rights. Other countries, what are we doing about the human rights conditions? We want to get on interviews. What are they doing in that country about human rights? What is America doing? Nothing. They're doing nothing. And we're not going to be silent on this conversation. Feel free to dial in 646-200-0628. 646-200-0628. And we got another clip for you. Listen to this. We'll be right back after the clip. A CNN original story for you now. We have been profiling a former teen inmate who claims she was abused while behind bars, and apparently her case is not isolated. CNN.com's Ashley Fance has the story. Girls as young as 13 say they were shackled for weeks at a time at a detention center in Mississippi. The reason, they say, to keep them from escaping. I went to school in shackles, used the bathroom in shackles, ate in shackles, and had to participate in recreation in shackles. Erica was 16 when she went to Columbia Training School. A runaway picked up for a probation violation. Erica and nine other girls are suing the state, saying they were physically and sexually abused there. In an affidavit filed with the suit, a 15-year-old girl housed at Columbia writes, He came inside my cell. He started touching me, and he tried to kiss me grabbing me around my waist. He tried to stick his hands in my pants, and I started crying. I think they should be ashamed of themselves. Erica's mother wants answers. You don't treat You don't treat people like that. You don't treat children like that. Mississippi is among 11 states the U.S. Justice Department has sued for civil rights violations at youth lockups. Although it's often been a case of he said, she said between officials and inmates, 
some surveillance video has captured scenes like this from Florida of 14-year-old Martin Anderson being beaten and restrained by guards who were later acquitted of manslaughter after Anderson died. This 2004 video shows staffers chasing and pummeling a teen inmate at a Stockton, California lockup. Recently, another investigation was launched into alleged violence between a guard and an inmate at the same facility. This spring, two former administrators at a Texas youth facility are expected to stand trial on charges they were having sex with teen inmates, one case among many in Texas where 90 state employees over the past eight years have been disciplined or fired for sexual misconduct with jailed adolescents. To address the problem, Texas has added hundreds more surveillance cameras and personnel. In Mississippi, the latest allegations of abuse at Columbia Training School come less than five years after a Justice Department probe that found girls had been hogtied, forced to eat vomit, and confined for days in a windowless isolation room. In Mississippi, the governor has ordered shut down Columbia Training School and all of its teenage female inmates transferred to a nearby detention facility. But the Department of Justice is suing that place also, saying it has its own set of serious problems. Girls will be sent to Oakley Training School, which the Justice Department said still needs an enormous amount of work. Governor Haley Barber and state officials who oversee the facilities declined to be interviewed for this story. Very glad Columbia closing. Very glad. It's sort of kind of like a relief because they put me and like six other girls through this and from their past lawsuits in 2004 all the way to now. How many girls have they made physically, emotionally abused? They owe my daughter and all these other girls. They owe them an apology. CNN.com's Ashley Fance joins us right now. Pleased to have you, Ashley. Thank that was you. a fascinating report. Um, you have to tell us, first of all, how widespread is this? Is this essentially the norm in these institutions? I don't know if I would call it the norm, but if you look at the Department of Justice that is now currently suing 11 states where there are facilities like the one in Columbia, which was featured in the package, for a wide range of physical and sexual abuse of, uh, of teenagers who are incarcerated there. And it's not just abuse, it's a lack of medical care, it's a lack of mental health professionals who are in these places. I think also what you have is a combination of undertrained, underpaid staff. Sometimes guards are making barely $19,000 a year. And there's also a culture of wanting to punish kids alone and not rehabilitate them and give them the therapy they need. It sounds like they're just not respected as fellow human beings. They're not. And oftentimes these girls are runaways. Um, they're from bad homes. They've been abused in the home and they have a host of mental health problems going into a facility. And you pair that with the fact that they're already obstinate. I mean, teenagers are generally obstinate. Right, exactly. But when you add this in with it, um, if you don't have the properly trained people to attack the problem, then it becomes really a battle between guards and inmates that often escalates into really severe violence. And you mentioned this has been going on since the 90s. That is a staggeringly long amount of time. Why was this able to continue for so long? Well, I mean, we've just gotten used to, I think, warehousing kids. We've gotten used to just throwing them away and uh, just throwing them in a cell and, uh, you know, doing the basic things like, you know, clothing and feeding them, but not really listening to what kind of problems they have or, you know, having enough mental health professionals who are willing 
to work in these kinds of settings. I mean, if you have a therapist who would rather be, you know, treating individual people who don't have these problems, why would they go work in a correctional facility? You know, it takes a really special person to do that. And um, states also just aren't willing to spend the money. I mean, to overhaul a system, it, it takes an enormous amount of time and a lot of money. And so states will often choose to slap a Band-Aid on it rather than to dismantle their systems altogether. The effects of solitary confinement on children, cruel and unusual punishment, states here the article, solitary confinement also places an unusual amount of stress on a juvenile, which causes significant levels of anxiety and discomfort. Because juveniles have less ability to adequately manage stress, they're not well equipped to cope with these conditions. Juveniles who already suffer from Pre-existing mental health issues are at an even greater risk for serious mental illness and suicide. Juveniles who have suffered trauma, abuse, and neglect in the past are, are really uh, perfect examples of why this system is what it is. The U.S. Department of Justice has found that more than half of the suicides committed in juvenile facilities occurred while youths were in isolation. And that more than 60% of the youths who committed suicide also had a history of being held in solitary confinement. William? The, I mean... I mean, there's nothing you can say, man. The, the, I mean, this is... It, it's sad. It's just... I mean, that's, that's what I feel right now. If you talk about just emotions, you talk about just feeling sad at the fact that no one cares. They just put these people here. They close them off. They don't care. You talk about the ramifications of, um, you know, and 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 then then they get to a point where they're going to take their own life. They get to that point, and they still have life to live. They have so much more left, and no one is telling them that. No one is reaching out saying, "Listen, you know what? You're a teenager. You're a teenager. Fifteen years from now, you'll be thirty years old. You know, if you're fifteen. You'll be 30 years old. Look at where you could be. Look at the opportunities. You still have a whole life to live. You have a family. You have, could be a father. You could be a mother. There's so much more. But they don't share that with these kids. They lock them in these, in these, uh, in, in these cells. And, and Mr. Perez said, said basically these are, these are, you know, stretch your arms out. Stretch your arms out. Take your wingspan and you could touch walls. That's the environment that you're in 23, 24 hours a day. Well, when they say 60% of kids that commit suicide in these detention centers have been isolated, that number is insane. And then how do we sit back and allow it? How do we sit back and let that happen? But you had said something too, Lamont, and I think that's one of the things, and it was also mentioned on the clip. We don't consider the environment in which these kids came from. So that if they already came from an, abuse, an abusive environment, if, and then maybe the abuse was locking them in their room or, lock, you know, in, a all, or in a closet. So now you're going to do the same to them? You're going to continue more? And you expect this child to, to, to write himself? No. I mean, you have to go to the court. i got to mention Khalif Browder tonight. I mean, we mentioned him last week. Uh, three years at Rikers Island, 
without a charge as a youngster, as a teen. We saw, we saw video clips of, of Khalif uh, Browder being hogtied, not only beaten by inmates, beaten by guards, ultimately taking his life out of fear, out of the possibility of returning to Rikers. Fear that I may return to this hole. I will hang myself by an air conditioning cord outside my mother's house because I am not going back. Bear in mind, never charged with a crime. And this man took his life for what he went through when he never should have been there. If he was never charged with a crime, it means he was innocent according to the law. You never charged this guy. But you sat in Rikers Island three years and took abuse, beatings by guards, inmates, hogtied, assaulted, whatever you call it. And you want to, nobody is held accountable for that. We're going to play a clip right now about Khalif Browder as a result of that. Let's hear, what he, what, let's hear that clip about Mr. Browder. Um, today is May 15, 2010. Uh, the time is now about 7.47 in the evening. I just need to get my story out. And you are Mr. Khalif Browder, is that correct? Yes. I was going home from a party. 911 operator 1719, where's Mercedes? Two male black guys, they took my brother's book bag. There was a guy saying that I robbed him. They said, we're going to take you to the precinct. Did you rob somebody in the beginning part of May, Mr. No. Browder? No. The time is now 10 to 8. This interview is concluded. They said, most likely, we're going to let you go home. Rikers. The most violent jail in the Island. country. All right, all right. Look what it's doing. Stop resisting. But then... I never went home. Khalif was my son. I know what he went through. I went through a lot with him. I felt like I was done wrong. I felt like something needed to be done about this. If I just say that I did it, nothing's going to be done about it. I didn't do it. No justice is served. Nobody hears nothing at all. I had to fight. You want me to walk away like it's okay? It's not okay. I lost my childhood. I lost my happiness. They destroyed my life. My family's life. This is supposed to be the greatest city in the world. And we are supposed to trust in this justice system. We have the justice. Khalif Browder ended his life for what for, for issues and situations that you just heard. Took his life. His mother, we know, passed away after after finding her son 
She said, I was sitting in the living room watching TV, and she heard this thumping sound on the side of her house, not knowing what it was. She went to investigate, found her son hanging from a cord to an air conditioning unit on the side of the house. This is the same man that says, they told me I'm going home and never let him go. A system that has failed. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of Khalif routers that are facing the same situation as we speak, as, as, as Johnny Perez said, someone is attempting to take their life at this moment in a detention center, in a jail cell, in solitary confinement. And if that's not happening, someone is being murdered, whether by correctional officers who walk the hole, as they call it, and will let a man or a youngster die and go ignored. This is unacceptable. Voices from behind the wall will continue to share these stories and these situations that are just unacceptable. January 6, 2006, Martin Lee Anderson, 14 years old, was sent to the Bay County boot camp for joyriding in his grandmother's Jeep. He left the same day in an ambulance. The teen had been ordered by drill instructors to run laps around a track. He said he couldn't run anymore. The officers accused him of malingering and then punished him with a violent takedown. Almost a half hour after the guards began the restraint, which included punches to his arms and knee jabs, Martin stopped breathing. An autopsy by Tampa medical examiner appointed by a special prosecutor later determined that the boy was suffocated when guards held his mouth shut and repeatedly shoved ammonia tabs up his nose. Throughout the takedown, a nurse stood by and watched. The grainy videotape of the restraint released following a suit by the Herald shocked the state. This could be anybody's son, a Miami lawmaker lawmaker said. Seven guards and the nurse were charged with manslaughter but later acquitted. Then Governor Charlie Crist signed the Martin Lee Anderson Act, which closed all military-style boot camps that used physical violence and pain to force compliance with rules. Martin was just trying to do what he was told to do, but he passed out. They still beat him. They tortured him. Robert Anderson, Martin's father, to the Herald in March 2007, when Governor Crist offered the family $5 million in compensation. Martin Lee Anderson died at the age of 14. Can somebody tell me why you're shoving ammonia tabs up the nose of a young man that is already laboring to breathe, but not acquitted? Hey, Lamont, from my experience, like ammonia tabs are only used to try and revive a person that's, that's passed out or, or semi-unconscious. To continually do that, you're not only restricting the airflow to their lungs, but you're poisoning it. You I mean, they essentially beat that young man down, they poisoned him, and then they got acquitted because a group of people murdered a 14-year-old kid. I mean, that's essentially what happened. That's essentially what we're reading, case after case after case. Ladies and gentlemen, I have no doubt we will be visiting these issues as Voices from Behind the Wall continues on this program. 
we need our voices need to be heard. We need to speak up and crowd against this type of abuse. We will be sharing some more of those stories our next show uh, about these youngsters that have died in custody. We will continue to let the, be the voice for the voiceless. Good night, America. Until next time, this is AJC Radio. A Miami-Dade juvenile detention officer is facing serious federal charges tonight, nearly three years since the teenager died while in custody. CBS 4's Hank Tester live at the federal courthouse in downtown Miami with details. Hank. Well, late this afternoon, that corrections officer was fired. And Rick, that's absolutely the least of his problems tonight. Let's take a look. Within seconds, one of the juveniles punched ER in his face as ER was attempting to sit in the chair. Several other juveniles kicked him, joining the attack, violently punching him. The victim referred to as ER, E. Lloyd Revolt, died as a result of, according to the feds, an orchestrated beating that took place in August of 2015 at the Miami-Dade Juvenile Detention Center. Now, an indictment of juvenile corrections officer Antoine Leonard Johnson. As you heard this morning, Antoine Leonard Johnson was arrested by the FBI without incident. It is a dirty, not-so-little secret detailed by a CBS4 Jim DeFeedy report. Corrections officers bribing juvenile inmates with candy, special privileges, even fast food burgers. This to beat juveniles who disrespected the corrections officers. Jailhouse justice directed by, in this case, Officer Antoine Johnson. Here's how it works. So usually uh, they'll bribe us with honey buns and stuff like that, you know, with like Skittles or something, and be like, okay, look, bro, this kid disrespecting me, I don't like him. The indictment reads in part, the bribery beatdowns were commonly utilized by other juvenile detention officers. Officer Johnson now faces up to life in prison for ordering the attack that killed ER. The beatings resulted for Officer Johnson two federal charges of violation of rights, in this case leading to the death of A. Lord Revolt. From the state of Florida, the behavior detailed in this indictment is appalling and inexcusable. In response to today's findings, the department taking immediate action to terminate this employee. Well, Johnson was in federal court uh, this afternoon where prosecutors asked for $250,000 bail. That's the very latest. I'm Hank Tester, CBS 4 News Tonight. It's back to you.